So you're telling me that Jesus went into the desert with nothing but a yoga mat and a man bun and came out <laughs> being able to fake his own death. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. And this is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives of the theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we have had a hell of a time getting started today, but we are ready to go for this conversation. Um, some pre-production snafus, but we're here and we're continuing our impromptu series on truth. We've talked about what is truth. We've talked about moral truth. And today we're going to talk about who's telling us the truth. Where's the source for our truth? And for, for our segment, to keep the theme alive, we are going to be doing a new segment called Lie to Me, which will be, will be fun. So we've had long conversations about this. We hope that you are all joining us on our continuing the conversation on Facebook Live and that you've enjoyed getting that audio here on the feed. Let us know what you think about that. All right, so to get the conversation going uh, today on truth, Alan's going to kind of guide us through with some questions. We'll try to stick to them. But as you all know, faithful listeners, we never stick to anything that we have planned, and we are going to do what we're going to do because we are simply a source of truth and maybe even not truth all the time. So we encourage you to analyze our words carefully and critique us when necessary, and I'll shut up and, and turn it over to the good sir, Alan. Yeah, the... The best part about being on this podcast as a co-host is just being in a constantly changing space with four other people that I care deeply about and really respect their opinions. And I think that that, that alone for me is is worth doing this. And I've said it before, but I would do this even if there was no podcast. And it's it's just so fun to be in this space with you all. And it uh, it enlarges my mind and heart every time we we uh, we talk. One thing that I was left with, and I think we we spoke about a little bit after recording our Moral Truth episode, which is the previous episode to this one, was where is the, the tension between listening to folks? Because we talked about the importance of engaging in conversations that were in, in, in conversations and spaces we're able to, that are you know safe enough for us to be able to do some of that work and to listen to other people. I'm wondering this morning where the tension is with being discerning about who we have conversations with or who we allow to kind of impact our view of the world and of ourselves. And, uh, and that goes everywhere from the personal to the religious to like, where do I get my information about the world and how do I be discerning with all the different voices that are going on in, in society? So I'm, I'm wondering what has it been like for you to wrestle between being in conversations with people and then also looking to sources as sources of authority or truth or, or helpfulness. The Bible, God, my pastor. Thank you very much. Those are my sources. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'll be your pastor, Jeff. <laughs> I don't even know if I have any of those three right now. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, I, that's a hard question because when, and I grew up in a fundamentalist tradition. And so truth was like black and white on a piece of paper. And that's the way my whole brain has been wired and formed. And so I think when you can no longer relate to that particular truth, the way that I used to relate to it, meaning the fundamental beliefs or, you know, whatever dogma, it's easy to want to just replace it with some other words on a paper that then I can relate to. And I think, it, I think the journey to living in the tension of not knowing exactly how to discern what's true and what's not true is, uh, is really difficult. Has been for me. I really don't want to take us down a tangent this early in the conversation, Bonnie, but something that came up for me as you were talking about like uh, black and white truth that came from a piece of paper. And typically that paper was like the Bible, right? And I think a lot of the way that we interpret truth came from like 
I mean, this is like 500 years after the Reformation, and we still believe that everything we read is true, right? Yes. Like, that's still a part of our our thought processes. Anything that is in print has to be true because it's in print. And that, and I think that a part of that came from the the printing press and the Reformation. Anyone on this podcast smarter than me could could disagree, but I'm pretty sure that 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 was a big thing. And so we still, 500 years later, have struggled to understand that just because you read it doesn't make it true. That's an interesting point. And I think for me, I I regard things being written as more true or containing more truth or having more truthiness because they can be looked at. It's like a snapshot in time that people can disagree with, can write about, they can write other things. And so when you have someone just speaking, it's almost like a moving target and you don't get to analyze it as much. I'm thinking of things like peer reviewed journals and, and, you know, critical work with scholars. When you actually are forced to write something down and defend your position, to me, it has more of a, a of a truthiness feel to it, but but there's also a privilege feel to that. How many people have the opportunity to write to put that stuff to black and white print? So it also is it it reflects a disparity in the way that uh, the disparity is that right? What that disparity Dispar- disparity? What the hell? Um, <laughs> <laughs> quarantine's making me dumber. Day whatever. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I think it, it 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 highlights that that difference between um, that. So now you can discredit a source because they're not published or whatever, and that that's problematic in itself. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. Sean Hannity has books out that are supposed to be facts, right? <laughs> right. And people go to those sources looking for truth or looking for their own, you know. Well, and I think that on. there's the technology aspect, right? Like, Casey, you mentioned the the printing press, it's book, but now it's the same thing. We have to tell people just because you read it on the internet, it's not true. So that, That's right. that place that it's evolved, if I put a link to some website and it's like, you know, whatever, <laughs> some random website that has, it could have anything in it. How to, how to drink you know, Clorox it, safely. Right. <laughs> this is not a tangent. I think this is really interesting. Like now, now I'm thinking, what what changes about the printing press? The, the main thing it changes is that more people are exposed to whatever idea was put down on paper, and it's almost like if an idea gets enough exposure, it, it carries a truth in and of itself that has to now be dealt with. It's brought into like a, a a dialogue with other kinds of truths, and it has some sort of existence. And so, I wonder if like the meme nature, you know, the being pat the, the transmission nature of ideas is what gives them their truthiness. Well, to even be able to attach the word fundamental to a set of beliefs. Come on. Doesn't it have to be written down to be able to to even do that? Because it has to be distributed in a way that lots of people can access it. And but I I think what Jeff said is really important that you know, I think in my own life, the folks that I experienced in my own family who are most true were not necessarily very skilled writers. In fact, they were often not. They were unskilled writers. Their access to truth was was like so pure in way in some ways that it was hard for them to put it into language and write it down that, uh, you know, in ways that other people could just accept or adhere to it. And I always respected that so much. Yeah, we can talk about the Reformation printing press and all that. Super important to talk about. <laughs> but I'm wondering if we shouldn't like think about that moment when the words on the paper didn't seem true to us anymore. What, what was going on with you when you were able to see something that you had once accepted as truth and it started to look a little less true? What was going on with you? I mean, I was coming out. Well, first of all, I remember uh, getting ready to go away to college, and my pastor at the time handed me a study Bible and said, use this as a weapon against the liberals. You know, Mind you, I was going to a conservative Bible college, so that tells you something about where I was. They're everywhere, Casey. They're everywhere. They're coming to get you. <laughs> I know. Um, and I think it actually started with the Beatitudes. Because I had heard those that story time and time again as a young person, it was different sitting in Seattle reading the Beatitudes and having to walk by homeless people every day. 
and having to encounter stuff that did what just was non-existent in my small town. So for me, it was sort of like, if we're interpreting these texts this way, and I'm seeing this different in my own lived experience, then what does this mean about everything else? And it was so helpful because then it gave me space and room to begin to question other texts that had been used against me, directly against me. But it started with the Beatitudes. Like if you really want to talk about blessing the poor, telling them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is not the way to do that. So that's where it started for me. I've told this story before, but sitting in seminary class and having that like decision moment where I was like, am I going to allow myself to love the Bible like I love all the other texts in my life with my full critical mind, with thinking through very deeply, with accepting it? And what happened in that moment for me is the Bible went from this categorically different thing that was somehow supersedes all of humanity to now being a part of the rest of my world. (laughs) It's such a weird, like, as I'm thinking about this, it's a weird transmission moment where it was like, now the Bible gets to be this ancient piece of literature, which does contain truth. And in a way that allowed truth to kind of become more human for me. And then I realized all of the other experiences and and the things that I've encountered have truthiness to them too. So I don't know. I think, allowing myself to encounter it and love it in the way I would other things is what destroyed. It's like other world, other worldly nature, truth can't be questioned sort of thing. It was a relationship of love, not one of, of hate. And that's only because I came from a privileged position. I mean, everything I was taught benefited me. So it's not like I, I was being oppressed with it as a tool to, to any degree that friends have. That is a weird moment though, right? (laughs) <laughs> I know what you're talking about, Bonnie. Like, looking at it and then mm-hmm. it looking different. I think that question of love is so important. I don't believe that uh, truth rules with an iron fist, right? So if we cannot question or wonder or push up against, then there is no truth to be found. Because then it's just authoritative. It's it's dictatorship. If we are seeking to find, if we are seeking to love, um, then we should have the ability to push back, and to wonder and to question. And I think that 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 returning again to scripture or Christianity, I mean, for all of us, had to come with this ability that we could hold it lightly and not take it so serious. Like we had to be able to do that. Anybody, I mean, anybody has to be able to do that. You know, f- for the purposes of this conversation, the way I'm framing it, I-, I think fact is one thing, which is fairly simple. You know, facts are facts. I mean, it's it's simple for most rational people. I think the current presidential administration is uh, challenging some of that. But then truth, I don't think you can you can ever find truth. I don't think anyone can have truth or hold truth or even convey truth. I think we can head towards it and we can be in relationship with people who have tools of discernment that might be a little more practiced than ours that when we listen to them, we turn a little bit and we're going, oh, that's that's maybe more a direction towards the source of truth than where I was heading before. But I don't think it's like a a destination or a pot of gold that's sitting there waiting to be found. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, Bonnie mentioned earlier the idea of journey and which to a certain extent has become cliche at this point, right? Like leaning into the whole (laughs) or a bunch of smoke, you know, pot smoking hippies. (laughs) It's all about the journey. Um, But I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that when you, that almost destination is the antithesis of truth, where once you've figured out what you think the ultimate truth is, then you insulate that truth and you insulate your bubble and nothing is going to penetrate that. And you're going to become staunch in there. And I think that there's several moments in, in, in my life where things started to change. And it was a combination of reading. It was a combination of relationship. It was a combination of life experiences. But I think the thing that drove it was a changing of context. In every transition that I had, in every new place I found myself in, that 
shifted and changed my perspective. And I know that we're, and, and I think that going back to the, the idea of privilege, there's a certain amount of privilege in that, that I've been able to move to certain different locations and have different jobs and different places where some people stay in where they're at. So I think that part of our journey towards truth or growth or whatever we want to call it, and then finding who's telling the truth is shifting our context. Even if we can't do it physically, then we do it relationally. We do it ac- academically. Um, you know, one of my first steps into where I'm at now was looking at my bookshelf and realizing it's all white males, looking at my movie collection and realizing it's all white male directors, and then allowing myself to shift context. And I think that that's an important part. And that any any source that says, here's the source, this is the source, only stick with us, is acting against its own interests in terms of truth. But there there are folks who like almost play act the whole openness thing, you know, like they'll say with their mouth, don't listen to just me. But in prag- pragmatic terms, they set up conferences with, you know, very few voices that are different than theirs or people who look differently than them. And that happens in quote unquote enlightened or progressive or woke circles as much as it you know, I don't want to say as much as anywhere else, but I've seen it happen. Stop giving away our strategy, Alan. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As you were talking, Alan and, and Jeff, I was envisioning a um, metaphor that I, I now relate to as understanding a way to understand truth. And that is a mosaic. And I think God is like a mosaic as well. And when we have a context in which there's a dominant culture and then all these other cultures on the periphery or on the margins, then we get a very narrow slice of that mosaic. So there's no way to really be able to even relate to truth when all we're relating to is this tiny, tiny piece of what is available in human experience and what is available in in the, the experience of the natural world. And I think that's like really sad and I know we, you know, we often talk about privilege and in terms of benefit, but there's also a way that privilege narrows an experience. And impoverishes. Impoverishes. Is what comes that's to my mind. Exactly. That's a better word. Impoverishes experience that makes it difficult to move in the wide world. And I, I just want to name that and and lament it, you know, for the ways that I experience privilege and how that doesn't enable me to be, to connect in ways that I wish I could. And I know that we kind of skipped past it real quick, but Rajiv, you were saying facts are facts. And I think just by taking what we've heard lately, that's not necessarily true and not true for a, a big portion of our society. I think there is an awakening of consciousness to some degree that facts that we can facts are a little more malleable or they they serve a different purpose than we realized. You know, who who do you get your facts from? Even research studies that will study the effect of something that are paid for by a certain group or corporation have the outcome already in the in mind before they begin researching and so that affects their facts that they come up with. And in uh, in scientific terms, we have revisions of scientific facts getting more accurate over time and people will look at that and say, "Well, Look, science wasn't reliable anyway, because the timeline on uh, dating something historically has now changed a million years. And you're like, well, that's the nature of science is that it's getting more accurate the more people you have looking at a problem and conversing with each other. And so facts are maybe less stubborn for us than they were 100 years ago or 200 years ago. But you have people coming in with really bad intentions using that as a way of undermining like the reality that we share together for people and increasing their power. And so, yeah, I, I'm just thinking of, of folks right now who are listening to alternative facts or, you know, something gets undermined. And for those folks, where do we go? If we're a listener listening to this episode and all we've had in terms of Christianity has been what our pastor told us, how do we know who's dealing more in terms of, facts that are more critical and things like that. Or if we're listening to the news, how do we get what you're speaking about is more rational people that are have a wider agreement on reality? No, 
um, facts are discoverable. They, they are discoverable. So when the president says ingest or inject chemicals that are toxic at varying degrees into the human body to fight the coronavirus, some people did. The facts are their bodies didn't respond well. They got sick. So facts are discoverable. Some facts are a little harder to discover and come to, and, and some facts, in, as scientists pursue them, they get to a particular place in the discovery process. They publish their findings at that point. Some people adopt those things as immovable facts, but yet science continues, you know, discovery continues. And so we, we draw closer to whatever the fact that is waiting to be discovered is. Um, so facts are discoverable. Truth, we can head in the direction of truth. I don't think we ever discover it. It is, it is undiscoverable. But like even but facts are reported by s- people with a certain perspective. And so what, what I, I guess what's been helpful for me is to think in terms of there's like critical knowledge and uncritical knowledge. There's knowledge which has been which has been allowed to be criticized by other people and has arrived at somewhere more true. That's scientific yeah. and theological. But but the stuff that's being reported are claims about facts. They may yes. not be the facts themselves. See, the facts are sitting there. They're 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 sitting there. They exist in time and space. And f- by facts, you mean information that is attainable through empirical data. Yes. And I would say truth is it transcends empirical data. Or so like emerges out of it or something. So then without repeating our first episode in the series, how, what, what, what's <laughs> the discerning process for us yeah, in, in discerning whether it's truth or fact like how how do what are some things that we do to maneuver through that and uh places that we go to figure that stuff out so <laughs> jump it in here again i i was working on a uh, i never really got a blog going but i was thinking about it at one time and one of the things that struck me was after leaving fundamentalism losing people in my life that I thought were friends that, you know, basically I was invisible to and they had become invisible to me. I was like, well, you know, how, how do I know somebody's my friend? What are the ingredients to a friend? And I I would say there's a lot that translates between how I recognize a friend and how I uh, trust somebody as a source that can point me in the right direction towards truth. So on the top of my list, the very top of my list is reverence. A person has to be deeply reverent about their fellow human beings, about the natural world, and about questions. Now, the person can be completely secular and still have a reverence about questions. They can look to the sky just like a spiritual person and wonder about it and, and have a deep reverence for the world around them. Uh, respect, which seems obvious, but which is different than tolerance. I'm or literally even writing these down. I'm serious. I'm serious. And, and a deep respect for uh, other opinions. And that doesn't mean you just uh, accept or like, oh, that person's crazy. Respect it, it involves some back and forth. And that, so my third ingredient is reciprocity which means an honest exchange. You know, there's give and take. So if I'm reading somebody and before I decide I'm going to take them in and allow them to to turn my gaze to a different direction is are they a reverent person? Are they deeply respectful? And are they reflecting reciprocity in their writing and in their speech and in the way they live? Like giving credit to people, giving credit to events, giving credit you know, to their neighbor's dog who maybe gave them some insight. Um, th- so those are my three ingredients, reverence, respect, reciprocity, uh, and no coincidence, they all begin with R. Like Rajiv. Rambob. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
Yeah, I Rajiv, I really love that. Like, I think Thanks, that Casey. that seriously, like, I literally wrote those down because uh, I think we all need to just listen to Rajiv on this because, yeah, I, I think for me, it's been rooted in love. I mean, of course, I'm going to say that. Does this person love me? Do they love their fellow neighbor? I mean, these are the questions because when you were talking earlier, Rajiv, I was thinking about like, you know, I have a favorite donut place and uh, whenever I go there, there's a corner of old men who have like co-opted that corner and have Fox News on and they talk very loudly about whatever ignorance is being spewed on the news. And I thought to myself one day, like, what if I just sat down there? They couldn't hear me, right? I'm thinking nobody is disrupting these conversations. No one is disrupting them. And and they speak very loudly about these facts that are not really facts, but nobody is challenging these facts. Um, and so I think of all of the people like that, if we're sending them away, our listeners and saying, just go talk to people. They might be stunned by what they <laughs> what they hear from people who believe these things to be true, and so it's kind of hard to navigate. Like, who do you trust? What what becomes real, um, especially in these days that feel that are that we are being gaslit? And so, I really think that it has to start from a place of love and respect and wonder. Like the people that I trust deeply are the people who have shown me in their lives. Uh, with their lives, that whatever they believe to be true is is real, because they're living it out. They are treating people with with deep care and respect. They have shown me and show like they have shown me in the way they treat me, um, and so I'm willing to hear them. I'm willing to take on their opinions, and that idea of shifting my gaze only happens when I feel like what what they are saying aligns with what I'm what I am learning in myself, you know? Um, I also agree that truth is not something that we will ever arrive at. It's not meant to be. And so it's sort of like Lord of the Rings. Like you're on this part of the journey with me. I need your weird pokey ears and your stumpy little self to walk me to the next part of the journey. I need that. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're going to be there for the whole the whole journey, but but you've you've at least set my gaze in this new direction and have allowed me to walk through this whatever murky forest and i think it's really important and so i i would say that the things that guide me towards someone who i can trust and believe in is um, what is their intention do they love me do they love people are they not afraid to be challenged that's another thing like it's important if you can't be challenged and every time I question you, you become angry and aggressive. That's probably a sign that you're pretty unsure of yourself or <laughs> avoidant. Unsure, right. Or, uh-huh. or like just tossing it to the Bible or something. So when I was talking about critical, critical peer review, that that's what that is, is allowing other people to critique your work and not just saying, well, the Bible says it. So it's true. And does it play out in real life? Like do, like, do the things that you say actually play out in real life? Um, because if they're just hypotheticals um, or, th- um, you know, I used to have a friend and, and I would say, you are looking for the world as it should be, not as it is. And we cannot get to that place if we're not willing to confront what is actually before us. Uh, yeah, I love that. Um, I think in my view, truth is pluralism. Truth is diversity. Yeah. In fact, even saying truth is blasphemy. It's truths, many truths. And so if I am going to listen to somebody, I want to know if they are okay with diversity and pluralism. And if that, to me, that's just like a litmus test. And if they're not, if they're really mono lithic in the way that they view things, it's really hard. I I mean, I still want to hear what they have to say, but it's hard for me to accept what they have to say as part of the truths. Because they're not playing the same game. They need everyone else to be a part of that monolith. We had that conversation really early when I met you, (laughs) you and Rajiv and Casey and I, like sitting around the dinner table. We had that conversation about pluralism. And it, 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 yeah, 
It's a central tenet. It, it, it is for me. And it, it's difficult because there's a lot of language around oneness that's very beautiful. There's a lot of wisdom teaching around the principle of oneness. But I don't trust it. To be honest, yeah. it just I just can't trust it. Yeah, I I totally agree, Bonnie. I, and you know, there's there's a lot about me that that is willing to shift and and you know be responsive to to new ideas, new thoughts. But I would say uh, somebody was pressing me. They were like, "Well, you know, what are you? Where do you stand?" I was like, "Well, if I'm going to be ardent about anything, I'm an ardent pluralist." You know, but. Part of that is it requires a recognition that some people are clearly a particular thing. Like some people, right, right now we're in in uh, the, the season of Ramadan and our Muslim sisters and brothers. Like I love being in conversation with people who are like for real Muslims. You know, they're rooted in their Islamic faith and they know their scripture and yet are open to genuine relationships with others. I think for me that journey of discernment starts with knowing my own intentions. So when, when I want to know more about something or something catches my interest, whether it's in a positive way or a negative way, like, Oh, I don't know about that. That's ridiculous. Or, Oh, wow. I really love that idea. I want to explore further. I think for me, what sets the tone for that journey going forward is asking myself the simple question is why does that resonate with me? Or why does that disgust me? And allowing that to guide me to kind of get a more holistic view of what, and try to, at the, at the very, at, you know, even just a little bit mitigate my own uh, cognitive bias and move beyond that. Uh, I think that's maybe that's just part of my internal wiring that I can't even not be rebellious against myself, but it's uh, served me well thus far. So I think that that's, I think that's an important aspect of that. It's not just how we evaluate the external sources, but how we, how we evaluate our motivation in what draws us to those external forces. What are you looking for? Right. I think that's a really good question. Right. Yeah. Mostly we just look for validation of our own experience. Right. But it's good to, but it's good to acknowledge that. It's good to, to recognize, like if you're coming to, to a particular topic, whether that be in scripture or the, or whatever the news, at least be honest with yourself. <laughs> when Rajiv says the facts are the facts, I'm like, absolutely, I agree with you. And then I hear people say that in other spaces that um, the the facts that they're offering are not actual facts, but the facts are the facts. And so I think it's just starting from a place of saying, what are you looking for? Can you acknowledge that you're unwilling to? open your eyes to other perspectives or whatever, at least be honest. That's a huge conversation we should have about mind change and changing perspectives. Like the science involved in that is some deep stuff. Like how people go through the process of changing their deeply held beliefs and opinions. That my, the, the fourth R that I didn't mention is uh, <laughs> resilience. <laughs> Are you going to look are you going to sprinkle these through the episode or like no, no, in, I think, ten, I think that's in episodes it. from now, I, I are you going to say the fifth R costs like that's, 50 bucks? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, it, but that's what you're talking about, Alan, you know, because when you've experienced a devastation of an old, strongly held belief, you know, there's, there's rubble, right? There's, there's the, the aftermath of the disaster and then resilience to like, okay, um, rather than try to go back, and refashion something that wasn't good for me and may not be good for others. I choose to be resilient and integrate this new understanding in my life and continue on in, in hope. Are we talking a part four to this conversation? Changing your truth? Is that, is that what we're doing here? Is that the trajectory that we've set ourselves on? I, I think that would be really useful actually, because I think um, each of us, if you're on a, on a, journey to use that word again of transitioning from one paradigm to the next that is no small thing that's huge there's this framework for understanding and relating to reality and god and humans and truth and then that falls away and then a new one comes into being that's like that's so huge and i know i found in seminary 
that um, I came from a very small world of thinking. And then I went to seminary and I apparently, I didn't know it at the time, but apparently I had resources for being able to change my mind quite rapidly about things. And I was in seminary with people who had a very liberal upbringing and had been exposed to lots of ideas from the time they were very young. And I was like moving more quickly through a change in paradigm or views than they were. And I remember being so like thrown by that. So I do think that, um, yeah, like how does one put together an internal framework for being able to change from one position to the next for real? Whoa. And we know, I mean, mo- those of us who are on this deconstruction, reconstruction journey or metamorphosis journey, which is the way I understand that spiritual changeover, that's huge. In, in that sense, man, we've, we've talked in the, before recently about our fundamentalist past being a resource and not just trauma, but something to draw or trauma that is resource to draw from. And it almost feels like in some ways it has propelled that growth that you go through. And it makes me think like, maybe that's how all of spiritual transformation is, is, is like staging, you know, you're, you're in this early stage, you're in this thing that needs to be broken out of so that you can go somewhere a little bit deeper. So as a side note, but it's something that I'm interested in lately is like, what is the purpose of religion? What is the purpose of these truths that that we use? So evaluating in terms of that, not just like, is the purpose control or is the purpose growth and like flourishing as a human being and as a society? I, I know several of you have brought up evaluating our truths based on the pragmatism and hearing you talk. I feel like in some ways our past are somewhat of a gift maybe even necessary for some of the steps we're going to be taking next. I think uh, studying in human development would say that it is, Mm -hmm. it is a gift to grow up with some pretty concrete frameworks and then bust out of those and grow into the next thing and then grow into the next thing and then grow into the next thing. Like a hermit crab. Like a hermit crab. Or a snake. Forget the phoenix. We're hermit crabs. Skin. <laughs> we know at space you're in issue. What one thing I do want to say before like leaving the the conversation is just that not all we said truths with an S, and I'm with you. The world's filled with truths. They're not all equal. You know, like to, you, you can be a pluralist, you can agree that there are different truths. You can't even agree that facts are articulated differently and and hold those loosely but still that's not to say that everything's on the same level playing field and then we talk about hierarchy right so is that part of your discernment process is is determining the hierarchy of the truths that you encounter yeah my my discernment process is everything that we've been talking about rajiv said it a certain way with four r's casey said it a certain way with with that interpersonal relationship and I think I just use terms that I've kind of been given when I've been saying stuff like critical scholarship. All it is is widening the circle of conversation that you're seriously having with with the topic. So if you went to Bible college and you weren't allowed to interact with psychology from from, from a good perspective. OK, so someone who disagrees with you, you should be taking the most generous read of their fact or truth possible and interacting with that interacting with that argument. So if, if you're a fundamentalist and you're looking at psychologists who have something to speak back to you and you're only reading their worst, their worst moments, or you're trying to like minimize their argument, you're not actually interacting with what they're, sh- with, with what they're giving you. You should be interacting with the best interpretation, the most faith, the most generous one. So that when you do defeat their argument, you've defeated their, you know, the, the, their, the totality of their argument, or you have something Maybe it's not all true, but you have something to receive. And so I feel like critical scholarship does that best is it takes all these voices and listens to the best arguments of those and then mixes them together to criticize what truth we're holding. Not everyone plays that way. So when you go to read a book or read a commentary and they don't, they're not in the same circus at all, (laughs) you know, of like critical work, it's, I'm not going to hold it with the same amount of weight as I would with someone who's been through that process. Right. I'm just curious when you say that not all truths are 
the same or as important, or I, I forget the exact wording that you used. To me, I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm I'm trying to work through that in my brain and my heart. Like, how do you determine that? And I can I could understand saying that not all truths to me are important because there's truths that have been important that have decreased in importance overall. But in terms of the the whole scope of truths, how do you not acknowledge that they're all on a level playing field and still stay on a journey of trying to discover a new truth if you've already dismissed one? I say they're not they're not on the same level playing field. Not saying that like they don't have a right. I'm not saying they don't have a right to speak their truth. If I picked up a book on someone's opinions on the Bible and they've never gone through hard conversations and never been introduced to to the quote unquote stubborn facts of history and of critical scholarship, yes, they have a right to their truth. Yes, I can listen to it as a as a conversation partner, but I'm not going to go there for some of the serious work that that I need to be doing in my life. Whereas if somebody has gone through a process of widening their perspective and of bumping up against, and that's I'm not a philosopher. But like the dialectical model of taking in ideas and then pushing them against each other and then coming out with something a little bit new, but retaining some of the old things that 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 pushed up against each other, that whole pro- iterative process enlarges a truth. And so, you know, Bonnie said, I came from a small world into a larger one. It's like if you've done that process multiple times with different things and with different conversation partners over history, to me, that iterative process leads to something more true. And so if someone's not engaging in that, their truth is not on the same playing field as someone who has faithfully engaged in that work. I get what you're saying. At least for my life. I get what you're saying. I'm just not sure I'm on board with the conclusion of that truth is not as big or wide because it's not on the same playing field is what I'm saying. But would you be level in, in terms of, in terms of what, in terms of importance, in terms of like fact, in terms of what, because I'm thinking, would you be in this place right now with going back to what you said earlier? Had you not had that smaller truth? Like, is it the chicken before the egg? Would you be here in a greater truth without the lesser truth? Yeah, you're right. I've, I've needed those stepping stones, right? I've needed someone to take me out from my small world into something a little bit bigger. And if it was too big, I might not have, have taken that step. I guess I'm, but, I'm confused, like, the, the idea of stepping stones and hierarchy, I'm personal problem with. So, I'm wondering if it's, like, a better analogy is mile markers. Like, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to – maybe we're just highlighting our difference in, in philosophy through the helpful, world. This is helpful because it's getting me a little more – and, and when in, in terms of what I'm using it for, what book I'm going to pick up off the shelf is what I'm thinking of. Who, who I'm going to spend my time digesting and reading. And – I think that's that's what I'm speaking about. Not necessarily are they allowed to hold their truth, and is their truth a truth? That's not what I'm necessarily talking about. I th- I think truth is a connected multiplicity, and there are different times when those those bubbles of truth are useful to us, and we live. You know, we use those methods of discerning, and then maybe we've used them really well, and we're ready to move into a different method of discerning. And so a different method becomes really important to us. I mean, the critical logical method is a great tool for discerning truth, but it isn't the only one. It isn't the only one, in in my opinion, that Rumi tells the story. Uh, if you if you don't know about um, the I think he was 11th century, something like that Persian poet, Sufi poet, Rumi, uh, I highly recommend checking him out. But he tells the story of these gnats who come to King Solomon with a complaint about the wind. And they're complaining that the wind is like not treating them well, it's blowing them this way and that way, and they can't stand it. And what are they going to do? And so King Solomon says, well, I can't make a judgment in this case without hearing from the wind. So the wind shows up at court, and the gnats are blown away. There's this idea that sometimes, maybe, in our quest, we're the gnats. And really, it's the wind that we can become subsumed by in some sort of way that um, has the final word if there's such a thing as a final word. So I'm just like offering that as, as a, a parable 
maybe <laughs> to help us with this conversation. Well, I think, yeah, that's a great one. In, in the pursuit of th- truth, we're always the gnats. You know, we're always the gnat. And, and the, the goal isn't to, you can't fight the wind. You're, you're trying to. Can you accuse it? Can you even speak about it? Your, your best hope is to figure out a way to stick with it, to stay in its presence for a little while. I mean, that, that's the final thought, I feel like. <laughs> I mean, that's a, good, that's a good place if we're, we're talking about continuing this conversation and, and moving forward. I think that that's something to contemplate as we, as we prepare for part four, part four. Is that what we agreed with? We're, 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 we're doing the, the changing our truth. I, I think that's a pretty important conversation, especially so transitioning from former places of fundamentalism and high control to something different. It might be something we can actually speak about with some authority and our listeners can contribute to the conversation with some authority. Right. All right, then it is settled. Part four. It, Sorry, it is, it is going to be written. <laughs> <laughs> that's just how, how good damn coming forward, good we right? are like is the that... gospels <laughs> right exactly and it's, it's so good we are we can just have a conversation and turn it into this four-part masterpiece of that that makes one of us the gospel of thomas who that's just what doesn't i was just thinking <laughs> i was looking at your faces and i was like all right which one which four are the good ones who's judas in our group that's what i want to know probably me if we're honest <laughs> no <laughs> I'll gladly take that mantle. So it's the it's the kind ones you have to be worried about, you know. I'm glad you've labeled right, yourself well, the kind one. I, I, as I was saying, that, I was like, actually, I'm kind of rude, but yeah, okay, that'll be for another time. All right, unless anyone wants to attempt to top Bonnie's closing metaphor, uh, let us close this part of the conversation and we want to know what you think you can add your voice to this particular conversation by commenting in the show notes at arenacast.com slash 166 also in the show notes you'll find relevant links also don't forget that this coming monday we will be having our continuing the conversation on facebook live and then shortly after it'll be on the feed for those of you that cannot make it if you'd like to get your questions in ahead of time you can do that by emailing us at podcast at arenacast.com on the other side of the music, we are going to be playing a new segment called Lie to Me. We are on the other side of the music and we're going to be doing our new segment called Lie to Me. So essentially, all this is, is really us sharing our favorite conspiracy theories obviously in the time that we live in there are several floating out there uh, any major news event is also surrounded by some conspiracy theories sometimes funny sometimes horrific sometimes makes you just wish that the world was over so to <laughs> lighten that potential dread we're gonna share our favorite conspiracy theories but before we get into that i gotta know are any of you conspiracy theory driven or prone to conspiracy theories or you know, I know my my wife is very much like she she's very prone to her conspiracy theory. She likes to, you know, think outside the 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 bounds of what's presented to us. And uh, sometimes it's really insightful. Sometimes it's just hilarious. And uh, I I don't know. So I'm just curious as to everyone else. Are you conspiracy theory prone? No, I am. I, I, I'm not, but the ones that I believe in, I really believe in. <laughs> right. If I'm going to be passionate about a conspiracy theory, then, then like, I'm going to like throw down for it. I agree with you, Rajiv. I'm not prone to them, but the ones that I do believe, it's like, it's on. Yeah. I am because like, I, I think it all relates to this trust thing, right? So conspiracy theories often present an interesting, way of thinking about something. So I, I love to engage with those conspiracy theories. 
I feel like if I uh, uh, believe in it, it's not a theory anymore. So no, I don't believe in conspiracy <laughs> theories. I believe in truth and cold hard facts. Uh, there we go. <laughs> I guess it depends. It's all on, a theory. I mean, in the tone, in terms of politics, I think it's helpful to really be a conspiracy theorist and to prove yourself wrong. Like conspiracy of of backdoor deals and people paying themselves through public service. That's that's like a helpful thing, you know, a check and a balance. So maybe conspiracy the- theories are not all bad. Mine's amazing that I'm going to share. Well, why don't you go first, then, Alan? Yeah, Alan, go ahead. Why don't you just lead the way, buddy? Okay, my conspiracy theory uh, is set in Russia. And uh, it's in 1959, something called the Dyatlov Pass incident. Have you ever heard of this, you guys? Because if not, I can't wait to introduce you to the best conspiracy theory out there. There was a group of uh, hikers. I think there was nine of them who were hiking in like a really remote Northern part of Russia. And uh, they, they were spending the night and never made contact. So they, you know, a search party went out to find them and discovered that their tent had been ripped from the inside out. Okay. In sub sub zero temperatures. And all of them had passed because, you know, they, they were, um, some of them were uh, went through hypothermia, and, and that's and that's how they died. But they were discovered like pretty far away from the tent, trying to make a fire down by a river. One person like had their eyes missing. One person had one person looked like they got run over by a car. But there was no other other way to determine how that could have possibly happened. And one person had crazy amounts of radiation all over their clothes, but only one person. And so there's all these questions about what happened and they they said some overwhelming natural force is what the what the determination was what of whatever happened to these hikers. So some of the conspiracy theories are that there was some weird testing in Russia with like some radiation weapons or maybe aliens uh came to their tent and they were trying to flee for their lives. So I'm I, I'm of the mind. This is that the end of our show. Thank you, everyone. We're so crazy glad. Happened, you know, no, that, that's my that's my favorite conspiracy theory, just because it's so weird. And the more they they even like they they disinterred someone recently uh, to study it a little bit more. And whatever happened, nobody can really figure out like how they got the injuries that they got, and it's still a mystery. Okay, so f- when we say favorite, are we defining like favorite meaning like? We just like the narrative of it, or we kind of. However, however, you do it. Yeah, but is is the abominable snowman right? Yeah, part of the mix here. <laughs> look, that was. <laughs> look, I'm all about Bigfoot. That was going to be mine. I uh, I'm all about Bigfoot. Um, that's my favorite conspiracy theory. Uh, my family, we we growing up, that was like the one thing we did was camp. We camped all the time, and so you know, all of my grandparents great-grandparents my we all have like bigfoot lore you know really um because we've camped in the same location for a hundred years a hundred over a hundred years now like we all have these weird stories about bigfoot and it and it's like it doesn't make it real uh you know factual but it is cool that you know to have these hand-me-down stories of bigfoot um that that are just kind of cool that's a good one. And generations, totally generations of, of like my family, you know, have passed down their Bigfoot stories. Uh, I have no interaction with the Bigfoot stories, but there is a documentary that recently came out where like people are filled. These hunters are like kind of trapped in this little lean to they built. And there's these like screaming human figures out in the woods and they filmed it. And it was, I'll be honest, like I'm not pro to the Bigfoot myth, but it scared me a little bit. It was a little creepy. Hey, what is the name of this? Because I want to send it to my sister. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I'll have to okay. look it up and then send it to you. Because so, my sister and my brother are both super, super big Bigfoot. My sister swears she's seen Bigfoot, you know? So it's just like, a like I said, it's who knows, but it's just like a family fun thing. So Super cool. Some people play cards. Some people go out looking for Bigfoot. Some people sit around a fire and tell stories about Bigfoot. Yeah, that's so great. Bonnie, I'm curious since you're the the prone towards conspiracy theory. What is what is yours? Well, is existence 
itself a conspiracy theory? <laughs> no, is, that, no. is that too too dark? <laughs> that so voice I, is conspiring, Bonnie, <laughs> in your favor. Well, truly, I mean, how can we really know, right? Um, so I'm going with something that I have enjoyed actually exploring further. That's very popular, so it should be very safe. Da Vinci Code. I I loved following the, the you know after reading that book and then looking more into like hmm Jesus and Mary Magdalene could that have been a thing could they have had a child together has that been kept from Christians for centuries yeah I'm I think that the the jury's still out on that interesting so who is I was gonna say Jesus's baby Jesus. That's <laughs> who's that one guy Could with the be really any long, one of us that really long flowing hair, and he heals people by just looking at them. You know what guy I'm talking? We talked about it before. Maybe he's the son, if Benny, of Jesus, Benny Hinn. <laughs> no, but it's someone that kind of looks like him. If it was true, it would be super disappointing if it was someone like David Koresh or uh, like someone that claimed yeah. to be Jesus and that kind of that they actually were. <laughs> right. Except 2,000 years old. I mean, how many relatives would there be by now? So Probably many. A few. We're all Jesus now. So You know, I did my genealogy and it said I was related to King David. I was like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough internet for me today. <laughs> Which website did you go to, Alan? <laughs> yeah. Well, like all of these nobles in uh, in like Ireland and, and Europe, they claimed royal lineage all the way back to David for some reason. That was just their thing. It was like in vogue. So it's pretty ridiculous. That's pretty funny. So, Rajiv, I'm interested. What What is yours? So, I mean, there's there's... Uh, uh, there's one that I'll dive into, uh, but I love Loch Ness monster. I love that one. Um, I'm, I'm actually like a legitimate, uh, JFK assassination person. Like Lee Harvey Oswald did not do it. I can say that with, in my own head with certainty done a lot of reading on that. But the one I'd like to bring to you today (laughs) is, is, um, one that I love about Jesus you know, since we're a Christ, progressive Christian podcast. So during the lost years, there's these scholars and researchers and folklore in India where during the lost years, um, Jesus traveled to India and he encountered Buddhist teachings, which is where he got the, the parable of the mustard seed and some other things and studied very intensely. He studied yoga and became a yogi, uh, very skilled. And so upon his return to what we would call now the Holy Land, um, he was able to go into the desert for 40 days and, and go without because he had mastery over his physical body. And in during the crucifixion, he mastered being able to reduce blood flow and heart rate and breath to, at that time, no discernible life in the body. And so they pulled him down from the cross, <laughs> still alive, put him in the tomb, and then through advanced yogic practice was able to revive himself. And his friends knew this because they had seen him do this crazy stuff before. They pulled him out, got him back to India where he lived into ripe old age with the monks that he trained with up in the the Himalayas. So you're telling me that Jesus went into the desert with nothing but a yoga mat and a man bun and came out <laughs> being able to fake his own death. He was fine, man. This is there a I believe. Because this, this is fascinating. Yeah, you, know? you can see his his um, grave in India, right? No, that's St. Thomas. No, I no, we saw a documentary. Rajiv, I was going to actually talk about Thomas uh, when you yeah. brought that up because, um, you know, uh, I went to seminary in India for like a, like a, I was going to be there a semester and it didn't happen because I got really sick. But uh, when you, when you uh, read History of Christianity 101 in India at seminary, they start with St. Thomas going to India. The Lutheran uh, missionaries that went to Kerala. Uh, and and we're like, hey, we want to tell you about Jesus. And they're like, oh, we've known about Jesus for a long ass time because Thomas was here. So I, yeah, I wanted to hear hear from you about that. No, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, yeah white I, people just are in denial about it. That's right. They I want to like, know what the name of this though is of Jesus practicing Kundalini in the desert and at his like at his crucifixion. Like, is there a name for that? That tradition is that a is that a real conspiracy theory? Well, yeah, yeah, it 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 is. You, you look it up. Look it up. There, there is a BBC documentary that he migrated to Kashmir, India. And actually died there, and you can see his grave, his his like where his remains are kept. Apparently, interesting. So you're telling me that Israel tour I went where they showed his grave was a bunch of bullshit. Well, holy no, no, no. <laughs> that, that's the tomb where they put the yogi in. Oh, okay, that's right. all right, all right. You know, that might be real. I haven't been there, but that might be real. <laughs> yeah, when I went to Israel, it was like on this rock, Adam was born, Jesus was crucified, <laughs> like all this other stuff happened, and I was like, all right. Right. Well, it's because God has a great sense of narrative. You know, he wants to keep things together. <laughs> things to be wrapped up pretty neatly. Well, like, uh, you know, the island of Patmos where John was hanging out, John the Revelator, and uh, the cave that he slept in uh, one day had an earthquake and it resulted in a triangle shaped crack in the ceiling, which is representative of the Trinity. Interesting. See, I, my, my approach to this whole conspiracy theories is vastly different from all y'all. Yeah, like I, now I'm interested in like Christian conspiracy theories. This is awesome. <laughs> I, I have no connection to this conspiracy theory other than I think it's hilarious and utterly ridiculous that someone would spend the time to craft this nar- a narrative like this. So in 2003 at the height of her powers, apparently Avril Levine died. And because this is real, this is out there. And because, you know, the record company, they didn't want to lose out on her massive record sales and her popularity and stuff. They replaced her with Melissa, just simply Melissa, just some lady named Melissa. So the Avril Levine that we know now is actually some lady named Melissa. And you can tell because if you analyze her lyrics you can see some, you know, clues throughout it. And then she changed her style from more of like a tomboy look to, to a more, you know, traditional feminine look and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. So, the, you know, I don't know. Do you, do you enjoy Avril or do you enjoy Melissa? I love this conspiracy theory because it's just, just Melissa <laughs> is, the, is the replacement. <laughs> just, just here you go. <laughs> this is who did that. No other... It, to me, it's just wonderful that we live in a world that someone has the, the the time and that their brain works in such a way to make connections from Avril Lavigne to Melissa. And Isn't there like an actual like brain thing where people feel like other people have been body snatched or are not the people that they are? Like there's like a there's like a real thing where you feel like your your loved ones are not really them that they're just Im- imposters of the real thing. Possibly. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a, it's an actual condition, but it, uh, it brings my life joy to know that it's there. (laughs) That's some deep lore. (laughs) Deep lore. Yeah. Well, my, but my question is, my question is with this, is that if this is true for Avril Lavigne, I can't even pronounce her name. Um, who else has been replaced that we don't know about? That's right. Where is Tupac? Right. Tupac and Biggie was a close second for me, by the That's way. Right. Just everything. Could That's could right. someone replace Adam Levine, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh <my>. With Todd. <laughs> With Todd. <laughs> oh, Can I great. just give a shout out to the worst conspiracy theory out there? And that is Q. Have you seen the Q conspiracy theory? Oh, sure. The sure. deep state and all that stuff that led to like Pizzagate and someone showing up to a pizza place with a an M16 or whatever, demanding to see the children who were being held in the basement by the Clintons. That's awful. That's the, okay, that's the conspiracy theory. If you haven't looked into Q yet and you're a listener, have at it. Go look up a Vox documentary or something. It's a good way to spend your day. That one's people, scary because it still exists, and it's actually. I know like, people are analyzing these drops that this person Q puts on the internet, and they like read them about the deep state, and then they're listening to Donald Trump for like, like analyzing his speech patterns and stuff to hear all the dog whistles that he's sending out there about how there's this satanic cabal controlling the whole world. 
Well, that the I would Clintons say that uh, Trump is Q adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're going to go conspiracy theories, I mean, yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, <laughs> hope for the How world the as we move know, forward. Jeff? That's what I want to know. What's that? How did the Simpsons know it was going to happen? Right. The Simpsons have predicted so much of the future. It's that's crazy. <laughs> all right. Any <laughs> I think that'll do it for us this week. I, I think we're kind of all at the end of our truth rope. <laughs> Until next time. Um so if you enjoy Irenacast and you would like to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenacast.com slash PayPal. We're committed to keeping our show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's irenacast.com slash PayPal. And don't forget that Irenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. And we want to give a special thank you to the Jacobs family and Sammy from Cincinnati, our most recent donors, uh, by providing a monthly contribution to the show. Thank you so much for partnering with us in this work. And if any of you, again, would like to donate, that's irenacast.com slash PayPal. And finally, the best way you can support us is just talk to us. Let us know how you're doing. You can support the show by simply making sure that you're subscribed on whatever platform you listen on and then leaving us a rating and or review. Uh, We always appreciate and love hearing from our listeners. So thank you so much, everyone, for continuing to listen to the show. So for this week, I'm Jeff. It's the body double known as Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. Captain Trifocals. (laughs) (laughs) it's such an inside joke that's great thanks for joining the conversation 